Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival. The 8th annual New York City premiere will be October 2023, along with the 5th annual New York Cat Film Festival before traveling the country, supporting local animal welfare groups. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at TracyHotchnerPets.com. I would not be able to bring you this show without the generous support of Dr. Elsie's the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. This show would not be possible without the longtime support from Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food. Other pet food companies may have copied them over time, but Waruva remains privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards, not investors who focus on profits. I was so delighted reading an article recently about how dogs learn to discover, much to my wonder and surprise, that Boston College has a canine cognition center and social learning lab. I thought, how did I not know about this? And so I quickly looked it up, and this lovely woman, Dr. Angie Johnston, runs it. And I thought, what are you doing there, Angie? What are you doing teaching kids and dogs or learning how kids learn so dogs learn? It's fantastic that you've melded the two species and are watching how they discover the world, I guess, basically. Is that is that what you're up to? That's exactly right. This is a brand new field. Well, brand new by my standards and science standards. I suppose it's only about 20, 25 years old. And what we're doing is we're comparing dogs to humans and specifically human children to understand what are things that we share with our canine companions in terms of how we learn from others and what are things that might be unique to humans. So, we design custom-built puzzles, and we see how dogs and children solve these puzzles on their own, and then also when we demonstrate things to them. How they so learn and, how our, they, and how they respond to what they've been shown. Exactly. And one of the things that we know from human children is they are very sensitive to what we show them. So if you give them a puzzle box and there's a very simple solution, they'll discover that solution on their own. But if you show them a lot of extra steps that aren't actually necessary, they'll copy those steps. 
Oh, interesting. And this is something that's been called over-imitation. <laughs> and you might think this sounds silly, but actually, when you think about it, young children have to learn about things like washing their hands, brushing their teeth, things that they may not be able to see the germs, but it's important they trust adults that these seemingly unnecessary steps are actually really important. And so what we've done is we've turned to dogs to see if this something that's unique to human learning that may explain some of our very rich human culture, or is this something that um, is even in our, our best friends? And so we've done this work with dogs, and it seems like the dogs will start out doing the unnecessary steps, but once they've learned how to solve the puzzle on their own, they just say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to cut to the chase and get my treat. And so it seems like this might be something that's a unique aspect of human learning. Unique in that the humans don't bypass the unnecessary steps. They repeat them. Yes. So, so, you know, people always want to use the IQ word, which is obviously a very outdated concept, (laughs) right? IQ is so outdated. You got your doctorate at Yale in psychology and then went on to get more degrees because that's what brainiac people do. But I'm curious, (laughs) did you start out thinking, ha, dogs, kids, there's a connection? Or were you thinking of human psychology, which is probably what you were, got your doctorate in, and then later had this idea of learning from other species learning? You're exactly right. So I started my career working with children, looking at how they decide who to learn from. So how do they decide who to trust for new information? And that's what I started my PhD at Yale working on. But then we, it was a new field, canine cognition at the time. It was only about 10 years old. And We had a postdoc in the lab who thought, well, my dog goes to a dog daycare. What if we just go to the dog daycare and see what the dogs are thinking? (laughs) And so we went to the dog daycare, and it was a lot of fun, and we realized that we could get even better data if we'd start a lab on campus, because it's a bit loud at the dog daycare, if I'm being honest. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. There's a lot of barking. (laughs) A lot of barking. And so we started a lab on campus where people could bring their dogs in for a 30-minute to an hour-long visit, and then we were able to do our puzzles with them. And I switched, actually, partway through my PhD from my focus on child development to my focus on canine cognition. No kidding. And so I I actually finished my PhD. I had to take an extra year, um, but... Yeah, so I, I switched to doing the canine cognition work. Because you, you, you found it to be so different, uh, I don't know, fill in the blank, groundbreaking, another yeah. way of looking at learning? I think a couple of different reasons. One is I'm just very passionate about it, and I just couldn't get enough of reading about other people's work and learning the answers to our questions through our research. But also because it was such a new field, there were so many questions left to be answered. Right. And I found that really exciting. I guess that that as people are getting doctorates and entering the world of of learning and teaching, there are, it must be much more freeing to discover 
an entire universe of ideas that have never been thought and questions that have never been asked and answers that have never been found. I mean, how much more might we know about children and psychology and how they learn? It must be a very narrow strip of things you could come up with and probably a very narrow area in which you could make things better for for human learning, for children's learning. I, I know that learning disabilities seems to be a big issue. I mean, when I was a kid, mm-hmm. there was no such thing as all the letters that are put after kids' names, the A, D, H's, and D's, but other stuff as well. So now mm-hmm. that more is known, I'm sure that there are kids that when I was growing up simply were considered slow learners or not learners, or they'll be better in the shop class. But in fact, they might have been able to learn the the more academic things if they were taught in a different way. Is that part of what you're seeking? I think that uh, to answer your, the first part of your question, that yes, there definitely is a new, there's always still questions that we can answer about child development and learning in children. I just like to be on the early end of the right. field. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still, there's questions in both fields to be answered. And I think that there are perhaps some ways that the dog research will eventually dovetail in with different children with different special needs, but I think we're just not there yet. Right now, we're just trying to get a basic understanding of a typical learner compared to a dog. Got it. And that makes sense because your idea of trust is a really interesting one because it also speaks to how animals learn from us, whether it's dogs or horses or even cats in some cases. Mm -hmm. And that idea of trust is not a word I've ever heard used before. And it's a really interesting word because we just think, does a kid or a dog like their teacher or their trainer? Are they comfortable with them? Mm -hmm. But trust goes to a, a different question. And that's what you started out being interested in. Why did, how did you come up with that word being the, the central one in your looking? Well, when I was doing the research with children, we, um, the lab I was working in happened to be one that looked in trust. I was an undergraduate, so I was just working on the projects in the lab. But the reason we were interested in that with children is because now children have so much information at their fingertips. I see. Before, the challenge was finding information, right? If you think right. 200 years ago, sure. how do you get that information? Most people don't even have access to information. Only the very privileged would. Um, like books and things like that. But now it's just how do you sift through all the information and tell what's reliable, what's unreliable. And we're looking at some of these basic abilities like understanding reliability and trying to understand, well, if we look at this from an evolutionary perspective, what aspects of trust are shared with animals and what aspects are something that's unique to humans and so we can compare to dogs to see do dogs have these understandings of different features of humans that might make them be trustworthy or not and do you know what those have you come up with some thoughts of what those features are um some of them so a lot of social psychologists have broken these into two roughly um different dimensions there's competence so do you know what you're talking about? Okay. Um, things like, 
Are you reliable? Have you been giving good information in the past? Are you an expert? Things like that. And warmth or benevolence, which is, are you, do you have good intentions? Right. Are you a liar or are you intending to try to provide accurate information to your best ability possible? So when people find that the dog trainer who comes to their house or they meet at the dog park or even at the doggy daycare, that the dogs, the, in my experience, the good trainers mm-hmm. get amazing reactions from dogs. The dog may not mm-hmm. turn out to be a circus performer in 15 minutes, but the dogs want to please them and they connect with them mm-hmm. and they react to them. And it's not that they've got better treats in their bait bag because we all have all kinds of hot dogs in our <laughs> bait bags. And often our dog is looking in the opposite direction and doing different things than we had hoped. Is that mm-hmm. part of the trust that the that a really good dog trainer can can develop almost instantly with a dog? Is that one of the things that you have noticed or is that outside your purview at the moment? I haven't looked at this, but I, I actually do think that it could be something to do with trust. And I think that this is a situation where a lot of times what we can do is we can anchor ourselves in humanity and think, here's what humans do. Right. How do dogs compare to that? But I think this is a case where we actually want to anchor into the dog because I think the dogs are probably picking up on things that we can't as humans. More so simplified cute. in a way, That'll right? I mean, like they're, they're cutting through the dross. They have maybe have, they have much better smell and hearing receptors than us. But we have mm-hmm. language. So if you're talking about a, a youngish child, toddler even, maybe our language and the things we're telling that child are interfering with their ability to learn more purely or more intuitively or more quickly. Is that part of it? I think it could be part of it. And it's also thinking about what each of our species evolved in the context of. And I think that our, as humans, we've evolved in this context of language. And so I think that some of our systems of trust are actually built around that. Yes. Um, so there is research that shows that humans are able to look at faces and they make trustworthiness judgments based off just faces. So they're not all linguistic, but a lot of it is linguistic. And that's why I mentioned words, because you said early on that if a child was shown a complex, and the showing probably involves explaining, right? a complex mm-hmm. way to get to point B from point A, the child would have followed those directions to the T, whereas the dog goes, no, never mind, I'm going right there to B. Because it, it, there's right. not as much interference with their ability to simply follow their IQ, I guess we could go with that idea, their ability mm-hmm. to be smart in the moment. It's a really interesting idea because I think most of us talk too much and too quickly, and too loudly, and too repetitively to our dogs, whether it's asking Mm -hmm. them for something, teaching them something, or trying to get them to do or not do something. And and I wonder Mm -hmm. if that's what comes through. I looked at it. You have a wonderful website, and I looked at a couple of videos, and one was a lab, and there was a student, probably one of your students, with a cup and a treat, and putting mm-hmm. the cup over the treat on the floor, and the dog was there so much faster than the than the person could even move yeah. the cup and the treat. The dog's like, "I already got this, honey. Just move your cup out of the way, would you, please?" <laughs> you know, it's not like, "Oh, we thought the dog might not understand that the treat is under the cup." That was, it was interesting because those sort of studies or tricks, even with children, are done right. Aren't aren't very young children? I remember 
in schools when little kids to get into the two-year-old class. I remember doing puzzles and, and you know, mm-hmm. things at, at a very sh- small desk with a very large adult on the other side. Can you do this? Can mm-hmm. you do that? And they were sort of like puzzle tricks, aren't they? I mean, those kind of early IQ tests, maybe they don't do them anymore for children, but solving puzzles to show that you have a smart mind and can come to our school. And that's really what you're doing with right. the dogs, isn't it? How smart are they at solving a problem? Yes, and we're looking more as a group, how how able are they to solve the puzzle, not as much like an individual dog. Um, I see. We're... But eventually, that will be very exciting to look at individual differences and breed differences and things like that as we get further along in a field um, to start to identify, well, what are the traits that are making some of the dogs more likely to follow the human um, teaching versus more likely to solve it on their own? It's a really great combination. Where And where do you get the kids from? Or are you mostly, because it's canine cognition, you're just focusing on the dogs because so much is already known about kids in these situations? I started just looking at dogs, but then it's become clear that it's really beneficial to be able to statistically compare the two on the same task. Right. So we actually divide design many of our studies, especially the puzzle ones, to have puzzles that can be done by both dogs and preschool children. Oh, what fun. And so we go to museums to oh, work with great. the children. That's yeah. actually a good a good um, delineator. Any parent who's bringing their small child to a museum is already like a, a high-achieving kind of parent, right? They aren't just <laughs> leaving them by the slide. They're taking them to a museum. I remember once being with yeah. someone who had parents that had no interest in culture or fostering any much in their kids and and he was in wonder at how many small children were in museums discussing things with their parents so yeah that's a kind of subset of humans that that understands that those exposures for children are a big part of helping them become who they are Angie I think what you're doing is great we've run out of time I feel very jealous of the people that live in the Boston area because they can get in touch (laughs) with the Boston College Canine Cognition Center and Social Learning Lab and maybe become one of your participants. It'd be so much fun. I'm sure people just have a blast joining you. And and what you're going to come up with is, I think, going to surprise you and everybody else too, which is, of course, the joy of your work. So thank you for doing it. And I hope that when you have breakthroughs or new changes in what you're doing, you'll come back and we can discuss it here. Yes, that sounds wonderful. Thank you for having me. And of course, we'd love to see any of our Boston dog friends. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to any of them getting in touch with me, Tracy at TracyHotchnerPets.com and telling us all how much fun it was to find out what your dog's IQ was, even though it's actually, you know, incorrect now to call things an IQ. Thank you again, Dr. Angie Johnson and your wonderful center. Thanks for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Wonderside, a company founded and run by a woman entrepreneur who wanted to find an effective natural way to keep fleas, ticks, and other pests away from her pets and home instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. Wonderside makes plant-powered products to keep parasites at bay without dousing your pets and property with ingredients that are harmful to them and the planet. 
The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human edible, ethically sourced ingredients and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and have been doing that for 14 years and answer only to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, also privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative Dog Chew No Hide and the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky blue Weimarano Maisie will eat.